0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Surf and Sales Podcast. This is season two, episode almost 30, 28, 29, something like that. Richard's giving me hand signs over here. I can't tell exactly what he's doing. Uh, We are brought to you by our good friends at Salesforce Revenue Cloud, gong.io, and lead411.com. And I'm here with my good friend, Richard Harris, and we are joined by a good friend from West Virginia who's been giving me all sorts of grief about my Snowpocalypse situation here in Austin over the last couple weeks. He's a field reimbursement manager at Exenda. Hopefully I pronounced that right. I can't wait to hear what field reimbursement manager means these days. Uh, But most people probably know him as the host of the Intentional Encourager podcast. And we are here with Brian Sexton. How's it going, Brian?
1: Scott, Richard, man, this is uh, this is going to be a blast. I appreciate you guys having me on, and uh, yeah, I'll explain to you, Scott, what a field reimbursement manager is. It's a uh, it's a fancy title for a you know doing a little bit of work. So, but man, what <laughs> what an opportunity to to be on with you guys. I appreciate it. And Scott, by the way, you've been on the Intentional Encourager podcast, and I just recorded an episode with Richard. It's coming out in a couple weeks, so. Uh, great i appreciate you guys giving us the opportunity to mash up the two podcasts man thank you
0: yeah absolutely so let's start with uh, let's start with the podcast tell us about the idea for the intentional encourager and um, you know what the show's show's all about yeah and what you're all about it's really what you're all about
1: well scott i'll tell you this man um, i have always believed in encouraging um, always believed in connecting and so I would do that when I was in sales with my with my customers. I would be a, a shoulder to cry on, you know, a, a, an, an advisor. And those are ways to encourage. And so people have been telling me for a good while, you know, to do a podcast. And I'm a sports guy. And I thought, well, I can do a sports podcast. And I have a heavy background in sales. I thought, I could do that. But, man, what you and Richard are doing is, is so good. And other friends of ours in the sales world, I thought, man, let's let those guys do their thing. And I'll focus on a niche that I felt like wasn't being filled and that was intentional encouragement. And so my goal with the podcast, Scott, is to be the the place on LinkedIn that if you're an influencer or you've got a rock star story to tell, like you told your story and Richard told his, that I want to be the podcast to do it. And we have had some unbelievable guests and it's been great. We're about to release our 100th episode and that's mine. Boggling to me that we're we're about to push 100 episodes, but the podcast really is about in three parts. It's telling your current story, you know, talking about things that you've done uh, around different things, and then when we finish the last 15 minutes or so, it's about your light, your life story, the obstacles that you've overcome, and the biggest lesson you learned from it, and your biggest piece of intentional encouragement. So, man, it's it's been a blast to do, and everybody, every episode. There is some kind of surprise in there that just kind of takes me, that just blows me away that people are willing to share that part of their story.
0: What what have been the commonalities in in the best stories of these 100 uh, you know episodes and stories that you've you know captured? What's what's some of the the things that people do best as the way they tell their story?
1: You know, man, I'll I'll go back to Scott. I'll go back to our conversation, which is episode 25. And I love the fact that you and I were just, we were just having a, a raw, real conversation like we were sitting across the table from each other. And that's the goal every time is to replicate that to where the audience, when they plug their headphones in or however they consume the podcast, they're feeling like they're sitting in the room with us, listening to the two of us talk. And so what I loved about your episode, ma'am, was you, you weren't afraid to just tell me what was going on in that time in your life where you were dealing with some unbelievable struggles physically. And Richard's episode, I'll tease it a little bit. Richard and I went deep on some things that, that he overcame. But the constant story is, I overcame, and here's how I did it, and here's my biggest piece of intentional encouragement to help somebody else that's walking down that road.
0: Now, I, I, what I love about, about this is it, I think it's the line, the distinction is obvious for people who can recognize and identify things that they've gone through or are going through that are really difficult. And I, and I think that it's direct access to, you know, powerful stories of, you know, people getting knocked back and picking themselves back, back up and, and pushing on. Yeah. What I worry about, and I'm curious your take here, and yeah. I've got this feedback before. What I worry about is what about the people who haven't gone through something that they would deem to be, you know, devastating or or life threatening yeah. or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I see people sometimes and they're like, "Well, fuck, Scott, do I need to like almost die in order to figure this shit out?" I'm like, Why? "Yeah." <laughs> I hope not, right? Don't go that yeah. route. What, what, what do we do for those people who might feel like they haven't gone through anything, you know, that extreme?
1: Well, two things I'll, I'll say to that, Scott is number one, if, if you haven't gone through anything like that, don't worry, your time's coming because life has a way of bringing it to you. And, you know, because I was 40 years old the first time that I had a real life event that rocked me to my core. And that was when my dad passed away. And so, you know, I'd gone through stuff. I'd lost the best man in my wedding. I'd lost my father-in-law. Those didn't shake me like losing my dad did. So I would say to those people, just hold on. Your time's coming because life is going to kick you where it hurts. And, and you're going to have to go face-to-face with understanding some of the commonalities we talk about on the podcast. But the second thing I would say is life experience is commonality. And, and I would say this, whether you've not gone through a divorce, or a health struggle, or, you know, almost losing your life. You probably have gone through something personally, especially in sales. You're going to go through those things that are going to test your resolve. And I think what we do on the Intentional Encourager podcast is we say, listen to this. Even if you're not going through something at the moment, it will inspire you to say, hey, my good days are coming If if I'm walking through a valley a little bit you know, professionally or whatever. It's an inspiring story, man. I don't know who can't get behind a good, uplifting, inspiring story because it encourages you. And it and it with all the crap going on in the news right now, man, we need some good inspirational stuff of people actually overcoming and doing really good positive things out there in the world.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think that's that's really important. And I I wonder if, you know, has is there are there people who've never gone through something like i i don't know you know now is it going to be like what i've been through or what's got maybe not to that external degree but internally and emotionally you know did they break up with a girlfriend did the girlfriend break or a boyfriend break up with them did um did you know they almost lost their job they somewhere nobody is stress-free right yeah. like i just can't believe that So the question then is how do people respond to that stress? Um, But I, I don't know, Scott, what, I mean, do you really know, Scott, do you know people who don't have some level of stress No. talking about like at our level?
0: They don't mean, they don't mean it like that. The people that I hear from, it's not that they don't have stress, but they're, they're like, listen, you know, I grew up in an affluent neighborhood. My parents are still together. I've never broken a bone. Uh, you know, I never lost anything devastating, right? Like, how do I tap into that grit or that, or that resolve if I haven't gone through anything like that? And so I, yeah, I think there are people like that. I, I, I hear from them. If if, we, if I sat down with them and got to know them long enough, I could dig in and find something right. that was, that was painful or something that they've gone through that would have been really hard for me that I could say to them. I don't know how you got through that. I might not have been able to get through that. You look at me and think you couldn't get through what I got through. I have the same vibe with you. But people really do – I get asked that question a lot, Richard.
2: Interesting. Interesting. I I find that interesting. Brian, do you you know people like this? Well, Scott, I was just going to say, you know, living in West Virginia
1: and Southeast Ohio most of my life when you were talking about affluent neighborhoods, are you talking about the people that had – double wide trailers or single wide trailers because affluent in in our region would be the double wide trailer yeah you, when, different. You, when you move up to the double wide yeah. then you've made it
0: yeah
2: uh, that's all I, i'm like I, there, there's something i could say but i can't because it would be ridiculously <laughs> inappropriate. um but uh but uh so brian do you know people like this like do, how do you yeah what And what do you find if you, you know, are you able to have those conversations with people to kind of make them go, oh, wait a minute, I have had a struggle?
1: Yeah. Well, Richard, I've said this before a bunch of times, and I'll say it here again, the, 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 the greatest relationships are always cultivated in common ground. And so you just find an opportunity to connect with that person and say, you may not have gone through this, but let's talk about something that, that affected you. And it may have been low self-esteem. They may have grown up in an affluent neighborhood and they may have grown up with a lot of advantages, but maybe they weren't, they were picked on. Maybe they were bullied at, when they were a kid and and it's kind of hung with them and, and they've overcompensated to to kind of, you know, to, to make up for that. And so I think you can always find a place of common ground, but man, encouragement is universal. I mean, even just telling somebody, hey, look, man, you know, things are going to get better because I don't know who hasn't been impacted by, by the pandemic that we've gone through. I mean, we all know somebody or several somebodies that have had COVID-19 and, and, you know, again, you could start there and say, Hey man, just thank God we're all healthy and well and safe. And, you know, we're able to breathe air for another day because man, if, if I know this man, and, and Scott, you know, this and Richard, you know, this as well too life is fragile man i mean i talked to my dad at four o'clock the day before he died and that was the last conversation i ever had with him and so i know in an instant man life is fragile and so if you can't encourage somebody with a good word or just something positive then i I, i'm kind of wondering if that person just have kind of insulated themselves from anything good being spoken into their lives
2: is that is that person just a narcissist Right. Like, is that the ultimate definition of a narcissist? Right. So what talk about your your upbringing and sort of how you got into sales and, you know, were you, are you, you know, I know you said you're a sports guy. Did you play a lot of competitive sports? Were you the kid who had a lemonade stand? Like (laughs) where did, where did you connect all these dots into revenue?
1: Played baseball growing up. I was a, I was a pitcher and outfielder. I played all the way through high school. Uh, I was undefeated my senior year in high school. I was 2 and0 and, oh, and uh, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, we were playing a team one night and I was a starting pitcher and this little four foot two inch second baseman comes up. I throw my best fastball. We're playing at home. I throw my best fastball, but it was right down the middle. and this kid absolutely crushed it like he like he like I had underhanded it to the plate and he just rocked it, hit it hit it to left center field. We had an ethanol plant across the street from our high school field. That thing on the fly goes into the ethanol plant. And so I'm like, man, I just got taken deep here. This is not good. But I finished the game. We won, got the win. I think I went six or seven. I I may have thrown a complete game, but other than that kid. And they're like, man, that kid's never hit a ball that far in his life. Well, my dad and I are pulling out. And we see the ball sitting, sitting across the inside the fence. And dad goes, you want to go get the ball? I'm like, why do I want that ball, man? I, that kid hit that ball about 500 <laughs> feet off me. Why do I want the freaking baseball? My dad was like, nah, let's go get it. I'm like, all right, let's go get it. So we, we he pulls up, makes me get out and go ask the security guard. It's like, can I have that ball? And guy's like, I don't care. Go get the ball. So I, I still have the ball that that kid hit about 480 feet off me oh in God. high school. But yeah, I still have it. Um, but growing up, I was gonna. I went to Marshall University in. Wait, hold, in West on, hold on, hold on. Yeah.
2: So, what does that ball mean to you now? What is that? How does that, in terms of being intentional and inspirational?
1: <sighs> it, it it reminds me of the time that kid, that little four foot two inch kid, took me about five hundred feet. Man, I still have flashbacks of 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 a crick neck looking up and and seeing that ball just but ascend.
2: Did that encourage you to? Did that encourage you to focus harder? Did that encourage you to, you know? Again, sometimes we have reminders of bad things yeah. to help us, you know, do better, right? Like, you know, you don't need to keep that baseball. You're you're a grown man at this point, right? Like, well, Richard, you know, what or it just reminds, a child in a grown man's body, depending on.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. There, there you go. Well, what it reminds me of is any time we can get taken deep. I mean, in sales, you know, you're going to get taken deep. In in life, you're going to get taken deep. You know, you can throw your best fastball out there to the world, and it gets and it gets rocked. I mean, the greatest, the greatest. You know, Clayton Kershaw. It, 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 I think Kershaw still make either him or Trevor Bauer, either one. I think the Dodgers have like four of the highest paid guys in 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 baseball right now. I don't care who you are, the greatest pitchers of all time. You're gonna get taken deep. You can be the very best in the world. And somebody is going to time you up just right and take you deep. So that's what that reminds me of is that I've got to continue just to throw my best fastball. If it gets taken deep, it gets taken deep. It's going to happen. And so, but, but yeah, to, to continue that point, I didn't play baseball past high school reminds me of, of, it encourages me of better days reminds me of times with my dad out in the yard playing catch. Um, but I, I didn't set out to go into sales, Richard. To answer your initial question, I started out to be a broadcast journalism major. I wanted to be the voice of the Cincinnati Reds. That was my that listen, was my dream. Listen,
0: listen to him talk, Richard. Guys <laughs> made for radio with this voice.
1: That was my dream, man. I wanted to be the voice of the Cincinnati Reds. But I was working at a grocery store, and there was a guy who was a local sports talk host that would come into my grocery store, and I would I connected with him and talked with him. And he gave me a piece of advice. He said, Brian, go into print journalism. They make more money. And so uh, August 13th, 1990, man, my 18th birthday, went to Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati, and the Reds and the San Francisco Giants were playing that game. And the, and the 1990 team is my favorite team of all time. That was the Reds team that went wire to wire. They led the first day of the season all the way through to the World Series. And um, I, 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 we saw the assistant sports editor of the newspaper he was two years behind my dad in high school, and I ended up getting a part-time job at the local newspaper in the sports department. So I was going to college, working at a grocery store part-time, and then from August to March, I was working in the sports department of our local paper two nights a week and dating a girl at the time. So I had a, had a lot of balls in the air, but what got me to sales was I had to work for the, the school newspaper. It was a requirement to work for the school newspaper. And I was like, well, why do I want to give up two jobs that are paying me money for one that doesn't? And I was like, screw that. I'm just going to go into marketing. So my dad was a salesman. Uncles were salesmen. Just a natural fit to transition into sales.
0: Now, talk about this field reimbursement manager role. Yep. This yep. Is, I want to I want to start here and I want to take yeah. it to, to this other place because you're, you're not in software sales you're not in yeah. in tech and uh you know i don't think it gets as much hype i don't know the right word it's not talked about as much at least in my in my world yes yeah. as, uh, as tech sales so what is what is this role what do you do day to day in
1: in a nutshell i i i help so i'm in the pharmaceutical industry so what a fuel reimbursement manager is is we provide education around patient access so, in other words, if you're trying to get on a therapy for a particular disease state and your doctor's office is doing prior offs and things like that, I'm the guy that they call for help on that. That is the that is the short, quick, down, and dirty answer. If, if right. you need help with copays, that's me. If you need help with, you know, if you get denied for something. And, 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 and knowing your background a little bit, too, it's an important role because there are a lot of patients out there that are struggling because their insurance companies are putting barriers in place to try to keep them from from the therapies that are going to help them live better lives. And so my job is to help those offices clear those barriers.
0: So I pay somebody like you to deal with all this stuff that drives me nuts.
1: Well, the pharmaceutical companies actually, you know, we have pharmaceutical clients that that work with companies like mine. So they they hire us to be their field access patient their their field access People to help their offices understand the access barriers to these
0: different right. medications. Yeah. Now, what does the non-tech sales world need to learn from the tech sales world?
2: Man,
1: I, I was to to, to to quote Chevy Chase from the old Saturday Night Live show. I was told there would be no mascot, at least. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I, what does well? Here's what I would say. I would say this is that I've been intentional not only about about encouragement, but connection. And, I, and, and and I don't care what you're selling. I think we need to do a better job of understanding what connection really is. So for let me let me answer your question this way, Scott, and, and, and take it after I say it, take it in, in the direction you want to go and, and push back a little bit. But we've got a misconception of what connection is because we go to LinkedIn or we go to Twitter or we go to Facebook and we hit a little button that says connect or follow or add friend and a lot of people are just doing that for what they can get from it. And that's not connection. Connection is giving first. Why do I want to connect with this person? Why do I want to be a part of of their world? And and to me connection is about relationship building. So I so to to kind of answer your question, and again, push back if if you want if you want to I believe that, that anybody in sales needs to understand the real value and power of connection.
0: And, and then the inverse of my question, what do people in the tech sales world need to learn from people in the non-tech sales world?
1: Well, I think people in the non-tech sales world have, have figured out that connection is important.
0: So the and non-tech I think- sales world is better at connection, you think?
1: I, you know, again, I, that's where I've spent the the part of my career is in the non tech sales world. So yeah, I you, would say you yeah. might
0: be you might be, you might be right. I just find it a little bit ironic that technology, which has been built so much to connect us and bring yeah. us together, people in the non tech sales world are potentially better at connection than in the tech sales world.
2: Well, how do me- you how do you help someone become better at this connection? Right. Like well, how, there- what are three things you say? Hey, do this to try and drive better connections.
1: Well, the first thing is you have to understand that people buy connection before they ever make a transaction. So understanding how those customers that you're trying to connect with like to connect. And Scott, you've done a lot of good work. I want it, my hats off to you. You're intentional about putting it out there when people come and try to connect with you in ways that are that are that are not cool. And, and I, I'm I'm hundred percent on board with you. I think a lot of people are trying to just fill their pipelines and build their funnels without really understanding what it takes to do that. So, Richard, I would say this, people buy connection before they ever make a transaction. The second thing I would say is that you have to understand that consistency is key. I I had to learn this the hard way in sales. When I got consistent in my method and my process and how I connected with customers, I got really good at sales. So you have to understand that consistency is also important as well, too. So,
2: so how do you? But I, I want to go deeper, right? Like, I, yeah, I love the yeah. I love the buzzword. Like, I love I love the idea of you know people buy a a connection before a transaction. But how do you teach that? Right? You got somebody who's new into sales, and I don't yeah. care if it's tech or not. I agree with you one hundred percent. How do you teach somebody that? How do you teach them that in a way that's that that makes it so they can sound authentic and be authentic and not sound fake. We actually just had a conversation about fake empathy like ten minutes ago. Um, so how do you? Yeah. What do you, what advice do you give to those people to teach them how to connect?
1: Richard, I love this. It's 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 what I did with my twenty year old son, and and we were the the first time it kind of came to light, and it was that moment where I could go deeper with him. My son about five year, five six years ago went to a basketball camp at Duke University. And Coach K, the legendary coach at Duke, was talking to these kids. And he told them something in, in this conversation. He's addressing the whole campers. Parents are there. And he says, you will look every coach in the eye when they talk to you. He said, when we coached the Olympic team, and this was before, obviously before Kobe Bryant passed away, He said, when I'm coaching Kobe Bryant, when I'm coaching LeBron James, I look them in the eye when I talk with them, and the expectation is they'll look me in the eye. So I think the first thing you teach salespeople is, especially if they're customer-facing, if they're front-facing salespeople. And of course, the pandemic has changed that. I get that. But when you're having a conversation with someone, look them in the eye. When you have those interpersonal interactions, the first thing is look them in the eye because nothing beats eye contact. And that was something that I had to, to, to get consistent with in my process that helped me because I'm very much a person that, that, that if, if something's distracting me, I'll focus that way. And I had to train my brain to look people in the eye. But when I started doing that with my customers, I saw things just start clicking even more and just start getting more powerful. So the first thing I would teach folks in connection is look people in the eye. And you can do that virtually. Like, if you notice, my eyes have been drifting when Scott's been talking, he's at the bottom of my screen. I pivot my eyes that way because I want to, in a sense, make eye contact with Scott. I want to look and see how his facial reactions are looking, how he's, you know, what, what's on his face. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say is, man, use people's names. Use their names often. The sweetest sound to a person is the sound of their own name. And I'm telling you, in my career, in my life, that has done, that's been gold for me. Is be is using people's names and building that deeper connection and understanding that you're not just there to sell, you're there to connect. You want, do you want to want do you want a one night stand with your customer or do you want to build a relationship?
0: Yeah, that's and great. I've never
1: I've never been a guy that I don't I've been married to the same woman for almost 25 years. You know, I, I'm in it for the long haul. And I think we've got too many salespeople, Richard, that want to hit you know, they, they, the old boxing analogy, stick and move. And 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 so those would be the things that I would teach a, a young salesperson about connection.
2: Yeah, we just, we actually just released an episode today um, with a woman and she talked about, you know, looking in the camera virtually. And, you know, I even have it set up now where, you know, my screen is literally about two inches from my camera. And she talks about, you can actually use your peripheral vision better than you think you can. You can always look at the camera and I can still see you nodding your head right now, agreeing with me, even Absolutely. though I'm looking at the camera, right? And so, and she says, you practice it, the better you do it. And I really like that, your point of like, how do I connect and, you know, when is the right time to look over at you and Scott and, you know, try to do those things. So it's, it, it's solid advice. I appreciate you, you bringing that in. It just reconfirms all the other stuff we've been talking about. So um, what's, shifting gears, um, Pete Rose, does he belong in the Hall of Fame or no, since you're part of the, the Cincinnati Reds crew?
1: 100% belongs in the Hall of Fame.
2: 100% no 100% no belongs
1: in the Hall of no, – no no. Pete Rose was a Hall of Famer before he ever placed his first bet on the Cincinnati Reds. Pete Rose was a Hall of Famer when he played for the Philadelphia Phillies before going to the Montreal Expos. And then – be. here's here's the funny thing, Richard. The Baseball Hall of Fame has always been able to separate players and managers. Look at Joe Torrey, great player, but not a Hall of Famer. Look at Sparky Anderson, batted 218 in one major league season. Tony La Russa, Tommy Lasorda. The Hall of Fame has always been able to separate players and managers. Frank Robinson, not a great manager, but hit 586 home runs. So the Hall of Fame has always been able to separate player and manager. Pete Rose bet on the Reds as a manager. And so I – you know, and so, again, I, I think he's got to be in the Hall of Fame. He's the all-time – you'll never be able to take forty-two fifty-six out of the record book.
2: So, that's good. Like, you're, Scott's over here grinning. He's like, that's the best explanation I've ever heard for this. Uh, you're on mute. Scott, there it is. First time in two years. You're on mute.
0: <laughs> we got Lisa on oh mute. Oh, my God. started talking about baseball, and I got all discombobulated. I'm just thinking the same argument holds true with Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and all these hundred percent, all these other guys. Yeah, but
2: Barry Bonds did it as a player.
0: Yes, but he was a Hall of Famer. One could argue already before he ever did anything. He was a Hall of Famer before he ever went to the Giants. Which most I
1: agree with that. I hundred percent. I mean, back to back MVPs in '91 and '92.
0: Yeah, people Uh, forget he was a Pittsburgh Pirate and he was like amazing as a Pittsburgh Pirate. And Scott,
1: you make a great point there. You know, everybody wants to – there are times when people want to group guys into things and, and say, this guy fits in this category or this category. Here's something that people don't understand about Barry Bonds. Guys today owe Barry Bonds a debt of gratitude because when he – They owe him a lot deal, of money too, Brian. Well, I'm going there. That's where I'm going. When Peter McGowan signed him in ninety at the, in the winter of 92 – to that six-year – he signed him to a six-year, $42 million contract. Nobody had ever made that kind of money before playing Major League Baseball. And McGowan went out on a limb and said, hey, we're going to go bring Barry Bonds back to the Bay Area where he belongs. And that – because – and they could have sat on it, man. I mean, they had a great team in 87 with Kevin Mitchell and Will Clark and, and, and Matt Williams. And those guys, a guy from this area was on that team in 87 and 89, a guy named Don Robinson was from Canova, West Virginia, about 25 minutes west of here. They had a great team in 87. They had a great team in 89 with the earthquake series that the, you know, that, that, you know, the A's beat them in, I think, five or six games in the earthquake series. The Giants had a great team, man. Did they need Barry Bonds? It's arguable, but what Barry Bonds did, man, was he raised the game for everybody else, and he got a lot of guys paid in 93, 95, 96. Of course, the strike was in 94. But, man, Bonds deserves more credit than that because he got guys paid. So,
2: hey, I – so Scott's, Scott's so excited. He's like, oh, my God, I could just sit here and talk to this guy for two Are we going to talk NFL free agency next, Scott? I mean, I, I saw
0: – I the mean, maybe, this, maybe Brian and I will start our own podcast. just <laughs> all about sports. I love it, man. Yeah. I so, can talk about that all day.
2: I think you, should, you, guys, you guys should just go on Twitch and call call baseball games,
0: right? Actually, that's not a bad idea.
1: So, that is, that is, that's
0: actually an excellent
1: idea. Uh, Richard, man, you're dropping the, the, the good ideas. I do this
2: for Scott all the time. I give him these great ideas, and then he runs with it and makes them money. I'd,
0: I'd be down to do that, Brian. Maybe we call the the first Reds-Giants series, and that'll be our – I'm down
2: for that, man. I am totally down.
1: I, I got a question for you guys, though. Looking at Look at what we're seeing now with the economics of the game, and, he, and, and even owners and things you're talking about this with with the pandemic affecting revenues and things like that if you guys had 10 minutes with with a with a a professional sports team owner about increasing revenues what's the first thing you'd ask him or what's the what's the first question that would come to mind
2: it's interesting we've had a couple of conversations with uh the heads of ticket sales of sports teams um but scott go ahead and answer what would be the first thing you'd ask an owner
0: uh I'm going to screw the, the question up a little bit, but um, something to the effect of why are you waiting for somebody to el- somebody else to move first and, modern- mm-hmm. and modernize all of your selling and revenue generation? Because everybody knows that every sports league is a copycat league yep. about everything from form systems to player personnel to defensive shifts to whatever. Um and we, Richard and I have had many conversations now with professional sports ticket sales orgs, and they all operate like it was 1995. They don't use any modern technology. They don't use modern tactics. They have like two or three people who've been consulting in that world for the last 40 years. It would be the equivalent of, of everybody saying, Oh yeah, we did Sandler training or we did Miller-Hyman or something like this. We
2: there's, call out they, of the yellow pages.
0: Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's, there's no innovation. There's no innovation there. There's no use of data. There's no use of, of technology. So my question to them would be, why are you waiting for somebody else to go first? Because one organization in any sport, one organization could bring in people who have, you know, been very successful at selling technology and bring in those tactics and tools and styles and transform the revenue through ticket sales, through sponsorships, through community building and engagement. Um, and I'm just shocked that nobody does it. And they all sit around still collecting their checks from TV revenue. They don't and- care. Yeah.
2: They yeah. don't want to spend but- any extra money. Like they don't yep. see the significance of it
0: it's not that hard to tie in the ROI. And if you're a small market team, like a Cincinnati, for example, by comparison to dealing with the New York's, the small market teams, and even the smaller, the the less high profile sport, like an MLS team or something like that, or a a ice hockey team, they rely more on ticket sales than they do on TV revenue. So for those type of markets and those type of sports, it seems to me like it's a much larger opportunity. And and a way to you know kind of money ball, if you will, our 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 revenue.
1: Yeah, well, Scott, you bring up a great point. They th- these owners feel like, along with the TV revenue, and a sweeter stadium deal, or I got to build a new facility that I can't fill anyway, that I'm going to have a hard time filling anyway. You know, I, I you know, Major League Baseball. They they aren't selling out every game. Not no, you got, unless you got, you're
0: you got, you got 80, 81 games and you're yeah. try, trying to sell you know twenty 000 to forty thousand seat stadiums eighty one times. Some of those games are in the middle of the day during the middle of the work week.
1: Yeah, you know what the most attended game in Cincinnati will be this year? And I live three hours east of Cincinnati. Opening day in Cincinnati is a tradition. They they close everything down. It's the hardest ticket of the year to get. I've tried. I've gotten on waiting lists, and that was one of the bucket list things I never got to do with my dad before he passed. I wanted to go to an opening day with my dad. But we always got together on on every Reds opening day. I'd go to his house, and we'd sit and watch it together. We just never got to do it in person. That's the one game they'll sell out. The second game, they'll have about 75% of that first game, and then it's all downhill from there and you literally could go to Cincinnati in the middle of June, assuming everything is wide open, you could walk up to the gate 10 minutes before game time, and you could get a really good seat. Or go on StubHub 10 minutes before game time, get a digital ticket, and get a great seat. I've never understood why why owners have thrown so much into the luxury boxes and to the TV revenue. And to your point, Scott, and it's a great one, instead of connecting with those fans and going how do we put more butts in the seats because the thing about it is man when i go to a game i spend money on concessions yes i spend money on on and all these other parts that are ancillary revenue that they that people are just going take my money please yeah. take my money but the, and these yeah. owners don't see it
0: and they and they and they also only think about right now today or right now this year because the thing is you got people like us who had kids, you take your you take your kids to a Reds game or a, even even Marshall, you go to a Thundering Herd football game, whatever. What you're not understanding is if you get in there early enough, if I, I started taking my kids when they were two and four years old to Giants games, right? Yeah. You have now got a lifelong- They don't
2: understand lifetime value.
0: They don't pay attention to LTV. So the, L, the LTV of a young fan is their entire lifespan it could be generational
2: years. though Scott it could
0: be 70 years and then to Richard's point, it spreads for, to the next generation and so forth. So
2: well, what's interesting too is that, that we and we've we've had this conversation, Brian with these folks. They don't even know that they can't even get to the data of that. They that really can't. well
1: that doesn't surprise me to Scott's point is because they've got a payroll you know the front office has set a payroll of X millions of dollars. And you've got an owner that says to him, hey, are we going to be on budget this year? Hey, if we're in contention in June, we may have to bump the budget up a little bit so you guys can go get guys. Or, hey, man, our revenues suck at the gate. And so we're going to have to cut. We're going to have to trade guys that we overpaid in the first place anyway. And, and, and Scott, to your point about LTV, I love that point because how do you think I became a Reds fan? Your
0: My dad, dad was, was a there. Reds
1: fan. Yeah, we grew up listening to it. For us here in this area, it's Reds country. I've gotten the opportunity the last couple of years, I'll share this with you guys, to work the, the the Cincinnati Reds caravan. I've gotten to work with the local radio station. And, and last year, I got the chance to interview a boyhood hero of mine, Eric Davis, man, Eric the Red. That was my dude growing up in the 80s. And we had probably two or 3,000 people in the middle of this mall, in, in our mall, five minutes away, that would that had been there since that morning waiting on the reds to get there. And we're we're seeing a sea of people. And it's and it's to your point Scott, the LTV that the reds have built up in this area is two or three times a year we're going to load up the family, we're going to go to Cincinnati and make a weekend of it. We're going to go see the reds, we're going to do stuff downtown. We're going to you know, and we did that when I was a kid and I write about that in the book. You know, the first Reds game my dad took me to, ironically, was against the Giants in 1977. I still remember it. I was five years old. And and I don't understand why teams are not trying to build that loyalty. It's a star. If you want a star-driven league like the NBA, great. But wherever that star goes, that fan is going to, you know, wherever LeBron goes, those kids are going to buy those jerseys. Wherever Kyrie Irving goes or wherever Kevin Durant goes. Wherever You know, that's why it was so important for the Bucs to re-sign Giannis Antetokounmpo is because they knew that those fans in Milwaukee wanted to go see that dude play and they would follow him. And and Milwaukee, to your point, is a small market team, but there's a lot of things about sales that translate in that that sports world because I think we've got salespeople that are always so fixated on the top-line revenue that they're not understanding that if you do the little things right, that ancillary income comes in and man, that rising tide lifts all boats.
0: Yeah. And I think, and I think, it, I think it, the tech world and the sales world has done a good job of recognizing that the future of sales lies in customer success. And, and I, and I don't know that the sports sales world um, has recognized that at all. Right. And at some point, it may come back to bite them in the butt. But I think what really will happen is I think some org, and it will only take one, some org in some sport is going to flip this thing around and do it the right modern way, and then everybody else will follow suit. And Who Scott, that's gonna I, and when that's going to be, I don't know.
1: And, Scott, I'm surprised with Mark Cuban's tech background and you being in Texas. I'm shocked that Cuban hasn't been the guy that's cracked the code on that with his tech background. Yeah.
0: Well, because the problem the problem there is that Cuban won't return my text. You know, I've been trying.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, he needs to well, and and again, man, if you go to Dallas and I've been I've been to their arena, they've got a beautiful arena and they put all the stuff around it. And so Cuban is there they're about the game day experience. But man, when you've got a guy that's so tech wired that he can't convince the other twenty nine owners in his league that to your point, everything is starting to revolve around tech and the fan experience through tech. It amazes me, but to your point, and it was a great point that you or Richard made one, is these owners are still stuck in 1995 saying, well, the cash cow is always going to be there. The cash cow is always going to be there. Why do we have to iterate when the cash cow is always going to be there? And you've got that lone voice in the wilderness going, guys, it ain't always going to be that way. And so, that's the one guy that sticks out to me just because of his background is Cuban, how forward thinking he's been on other things.
2: Yeah, but Cuban's also smart enough to know he's not going to convince a lot of people, right? Like he's, I'm sure he has a couple of owners who get it, right? Like I'm sure, and I don't know, my assumption is, you know, if they're talking about revenue, he could probably talk to the Golden State Warriors more about tech than he could, you know, some of the other team owners, right? Um, hey,
1: Richard, I think it's a great. What you you just hit on something there. Cuban was going to buy the Chicago Cubs about 10 or 12 years ago, and he was going to pay some kind of astronomical price. It was insane. I forget the number. And baseball owners didn't want Mark Cuban. That's probably the best thing that ever happened to Mark Cuban because baseball owners rejecting him is, is again, why their sport is not growing exponentially like the NFL and the NBA. I mean, I'm again, I'm a Bengals fan. Yeah, we you know make the jokes that you want to make, but man, that franchise is now valued at over a billion dollars.
2: I think they all are, right? Yeah, and so yeah, so even the
1: even the bottom rung teams of the NFL know how to make money, and that's why the NFL is the is absolutely the greatest league on the planet. Yeah, but the NFL
2: gets all their money from TV rights.
1: Well, and they and, and they and Richard, to your point, they figured out how to play this year. As as simply a made for TV product because how many stadiums were empty this year?
2: Yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. We gotta we gotta wrap this up. Unfortunately, it's been a great episode about some level of sales, but a whole lot of fun about sports. So we appreciate. I'm down
1: it. for that, man. I'm down so for
2: that. I, l- I look forward to, to listening to the two of you uh, on Twitch live for the Giants uh, Reds game. We're gonna make awesome. that I'm happen.
0: I'm absolutely but, down for that. That's this this will be good the good. first
2: time Scott actually tries to learn a technology. <laughs> but actually, put the effort in. So
0: that, that part just gave me a little shiver of fear. So. But the actual calling of the game, I got no fear about that. I'm so, ready. So uh, and you know, uh,
1: twitch to a West Virginian is probably a neurological disease. So I'm gonna have to figure out twitch myself. So um,
2: anyway, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, Salesforce Revenue Cloud, Lead Four One One, and Gong.io. Um, and please, you know, give Brian Sexton and the Intentional Encourager podcast a, a listen uh, lots of fun and interesting stories, lots of inspirational things. Um, definitely talks about business, but talks about life. So it, I, you know, I had a good time being on it and, um, you know, I, I think he's really putting good karma in the world, which is one of the things I love about, about Brian. So Brian, thank you so much for coming on.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Brian.
1: Guys. I appreciate it. Don't forget my book. People buy from people's out there. Oh yeah. Well, I forgot too. about that. Yeah. They can, they can go get people buy from people. And I'm working on the second book, which is going to be called The Intentional Encourager. Hope to have that out mid, you know, early to mid-July is the the, uh, preliminary release date on that. But guys, what a blast it's been. Connect with me on LinkedIn, connect with me on Twitter. And uh, man, Richard, Scott, this has been great. Thanks, guys. I appreciate
2: it. Yeah, actually, we forgot to ask the last question. So the last question is, for those who stick around this long, what advice can we give you? What did you like to ask us?
1: I want to know from you guys how how you went about building a successful network and how you incorporated your podcast in, into the midst of your network, because that's something that I'm kind of struggling with is, is, is really taking this thing to the next level. So I, I want to know from two guys that are doing it, how did you grow your network and, and incorporate your podcast in, into, the, into that offering around content?
2: Well, I'll start with this one because it was all my idea which Scott likes. Um, so we, about five years ago, four years ago, we, we figured out how to start growing our network on LinkedIn in general terms, right? How to scale it and what the value of connections were. I had always been commenting and writing on stuff on LinkedIn and you know, getting decent response. And I discovered a tool that let me do this at scale, little black hat, but I don't care. Um, and I was able to connect with more people. And then I shared the idea with Scott cause he was starting to share stuff. Um, and starting to think about his side hustle. So of course, Scott immediately uh, takes what I teach him and explodes it like beyond belief, right? Um, because Scott's more stri- strategic around it. Um, so that's, that's where that piece, So we, but we consciously built the network first. The podcast, I don't even think was an idea like it, it, for four years. And then last, yeah, I guess a year and a half ago, I decided I was talking to our good friend, John Barrows. And he's, I'm like, you know, because he has a podcast. I'm like, you know, do I need to do a podcast? I don't know if anybody's going to listen. He's like, dude, people want to hear what we have to say. Like, you know, don't worry about it. Just put it out there and see what happens. And I'm in my standard um, response of imposter syndrome. I'm like, oh, I'm too scared to do this by myself. So I was down doing something with Scott. I said, dude, I'm thinking of doing this. And I think we're better together than we are apart. And he immediately got it. The idea was let's go Netflix style where we drop a bunch of episodes all at once, try and be different. And that's where it started, right? And um, and then since then, Scott's taken this stuff to a whole other level around community and network and building and posting well beyond what I ever did. So that's that's my version of the story in terms of things.
0: So. Uh, I, <clears throat> I would say there's a few different... Thanks. Um, number one, to Richard's point, we built the network first, so I can I can imagine a whole other struggle, you know, trying to grow a podcast while also trying to grow a network. Um, that wasn't our struggle. We already had the network. Um, then, you know, and Richard mentioned this: we're better together. Like, you combine two people's networks instead of just one. You split the work rather than do it all yourself, whether it's, you know, uploading stuff or finding guests and scheduling them, or even just thinking of questions to ask people, right? There's plenty of times on the show where Richard and I will, you know, chat each other on the side and be like, Hey, you go next. Hey, your turn. Ask about this. Like, it just makes it easier, you know? Um, and then it increases our, the guest list you can pull from because Richard knows people and pull some people. I know people and pull some people. Um, it was definitely Richard's idea to do the, do the podcast. And although I think it was my idea to brand it the same name as surfing sales, a hundred percent. Cause I was like, we already have this event and this business. Why don't we just make you know that the name of the podcast? So it's less things for people to remember, right? Like, if we called the show, I don't know, the excuse factory, right? People be like, well, who does that? Well, there was already name association with Serpent Sales. So I think that that, um, you know, that helped. So there's a couple little cheat codes there, if you will, Brian, that we, you know, sort of strategically cobbled together and, and also just kind of got lucky. You know, it's not like we said 10 years ago, five years ago, hey, let's build a huge network and then build a podcast. No, we just never even thought about podcasts. Yeah.
2: The other thing I would say, and, and I've been talking and preaching this for a while. And, um, you know, we've been keeping people advice of like, you know, you're officially Brian Sexton, LLC. Like we told our good friend Colin Cadness, you know, cause he was thinking about going out I'm like everything Colin does, everything you do is, is an asset. Your LinkedIn post is an asset that could also run on your blog. That could go out in your newsletter, right? Your book and your podcast, the Intentional Encourager, those are now, now they're an asset. So think about things at an asset level. And yes, you still have to keep focusing on the network side, but now you you know now I think you get more vision, right? And to a certain extent, you get to use the content in more than one place, right? So that's no, that's that's, that's
1: great advice. It's great. I, the, the only other question I would have for you, Scott, is. How do you teach a six foot three, two hundred and seventy pound guy that's unathletic and two bad knees how to surf?
0: Uh,
2: <laughs> Dude, I'm I'm five eleven and way overweight, so I'm right there with you.
0: <laughs> it can't. It can be done. I yes. would just. I'll just say that it can be done. Plus, if nothing else, you know, you get some sunshine on the beach in Costa Rica with a little uh, fruity there's, cocktail. On your there's head, about a cocktail.
2: I, if we take fifteen people. There's at least five or six who, after the first day of surf lessons, don't even try to surf anymore. They just want to come out. They want to do it. But then they kind of realize, wait a minute, there's these great Mark. hammocks right by the beach where I can <laughs> yeah. just chill. And right, so it's. it's hey, know. Richard, my problem
1: would be that someone would would see me and as white as I am and try to harpoon me. They're like, check out well, that whale out there that, that's on a surfboard.
2: Trust me, it, be would good. Be
1: shooting, they would be shooting flares out there, <laughs> trying to reel in the big one. <laughs> oh, it's, all it's all good.
2: It's all good. Hey, man, Brian, thank you so much again. We really appreciate it,
1: boys. It's been a blast. I appreciate you, Richard. Thanks, Scott. Been a been good, a fun time, man.